0: You go ahead and get your Bible. Turn it. Turn it to Nahum chapter two. Nahum is a, a, a book in the Old Testament. It's a minor prophet, um, one of the minor prophets. It's wedged in there. You, you can go past it quickly because it's usually two or three pages in a Bible. Um, and David mentioned he he prayed that I would preach uh, something that Lord the Lord laid on my heart. Well, the pastor laid this on my heart by saying, "We're in Nahum, and you're going <laughs> to preach. You're going to preach." Nahum chapter two. So, uh, but I will, I will, I will admit that God, in, in His sovereignty and providence, uh, it is a message from God directly from my pastor. Okay, um, so we'll continue looking at this short but relevant book in the Old Testament. Testament and over the last week, I think hunters did a pretty good job laying the background of this writing. Uh, but before we read chapter 2 together, we're going to read it in its entirety. For, for those who hadn't been here, maybe those who aren't familiar with this book, here's a few brief things that I think you need to remember, a few things I think you need to know. And so Nahum is a minor prophet. Nahum, Nahum it's a, a prophecy, and what's unique to the prophet Nahum is this, you'll find out in, chapter, in verse 1, as Hunter mentioned, this is a written down prophecy. It was a prophetic book where the other ones were more of visions and they were meant to, like Jonah, go communicate this, this thing to the Ninevites to repent. This is a written prophet prophecy. And this comes a hundred years or so after Jonah goes to Nineveh. So if you're familiar with the book of Jonah, Jonah, another minor prophet, God commanded Jonah to go to the Ninevites. He said, no, you know the rest of the story. He's going, right? He puts him in the the belly of a fish and and he ends up going and preaching repentance. And so if you'll remember correctly, uh, when Jonah went to the Ninevites to preach them a message of repentance, they repented. You know, they repented. Well, now Nahum is here. Obviously, a hundred years later, that repentance did not last. And so now what we find in Nahum is not Nahum saying repent. He's saying, woe to you, Nineveh. You are in trouble. Woe to you. The time of repentance has come and gone. God is against you. We'll find that out in a minute. So the Assyrians for hundreds of years, who are the Assyrians? What about Nineveh? Uh, Nineveh housed the Assyrian Empire. It was the capital city, so to speak, of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians, for hundreds of years, were some of the most savage, bloodshedding conquerors of people. They meant business. And when they wanted something, they got it. They took it. They were that powerful. They were that destructive. They could take what they wanted. And so they they savaged many different nations, many different people groups, and uh, and so they were many different people groups, Uh, but Israel, God's chosen people, were not exempt. They had many run-ins with the Assyrians too, and so a few examples are Assyria's conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel that began approximately 740 BC, which is about also 100 years before this book, uh, which was about 640, 630 B.C. And so if you'll read in First Chronicles, don't do that now, you can make a note of it. First Chronicles five twenty six says, So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Paul, king of Assyria, the spirit of Tilglath, Pilser, king of Assyria, and he took them into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Hala, harbor, Hora and the river goes on to this day. These tribes located east of the Jordan River were the first ones conquered by Assyria. So Assyria, uh, they conquered Israel. They fought war against Israel in different times. Uh, another one, nearly 20 years later, around 722 B.C., the capital city Samaria was overtaken by the Assyrians. After first forcing tribute payments, the Assyrians later laid siege to the city when it refused to pay. This is all important to where I'm going, so hang with me. Following a three-year siege, Second Kings also makes reference of this. Second Kings 17 notes that in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, and on the Haber, the river of Gozan, I am butchering those, I guarantee you, and the cities of Medes. And in 701 B.C., the Assyrians marched south into Judah. However, they were unable to capture Jerusalem due to the Lord's intervention. That's a, that's a, uh, a s- summary of what you will find in Second Chronicles 32 um, in God's Old Testament word. So, the Assyrians were the bad boys. Uh, and they inflicted pain. No one was exempt, especially Israel. Well, here's what we also know about Israel. We also know that the Lord had long warned Israel of judgment coming on them, the Israelites, God's people. Going all the way back to Moses' stern warning found in Deuteronomy 28. Second Kings 17 says this, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, many attempts had been made to turn the people back to God. We know as we read the Old Testament that Israel many, many, many times turned to idols. They rebuked the Lord. They they lived in sin. They did not know the Lord. They did not worship the Lord. And so God punished His own people. So what the Bible shows us in these places is that because God's people has committed many sins against him and began to turn from him, he was going to bring judgment on them. And the question is, how did this judgment come? It came in the form of raising up a wicked people, the Assyrians. The Assyrians. And so now we get to our text. With a little background here, you've got Israel in view. Israel's going to be told that uh, I'm going to, God's going to, rest, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to withdraw your oppression. The oppressive Assyrians will take their seat in judgment. That's what we'll find. So let's read. Open your Bibles to Nineveh 2. I'm going to read it all. And as I read, I'm going to point out where it's making mention of Judah or Israel and where it's making mention of Nineveh and the Assyrians. Verse 1 An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Obviously, guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines, the shields of the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall, the protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open, and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh will be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breast. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The supply is endless. The wealth from its uh, from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, stripped, hearts melt, knees give way, bodies tremble, every face grows pale. Where now is the lion's den, the place where they fed their young, where the lion and lioness went and the cubs and with nothing to fear? The lion killed enough for his cubs and strangled the prey for his mate, filling its lairs with the kill and his dens with the prey. Check out verse 13 to the Assyrians, to Nineveh. He says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers, Nineveh, Assyrians, will no longer be heard. What an amazing depiction of judgment and a brutal victory that they, would be, that they would lose soon after this. Let's stop here and pray. Father, as we've just read your word, Father, help us to understand the significance of what we read. Help us to not get caught up in who is Nineveh, what were the Assyrians, what did you, Jerusalem and Israel and Judah think about this, But let us see God in this story. Let us see you in this story. Your Bible is a revelation of you to us. Let us see a God that never changes. And let that God uh, change our behavior. And let us see how you are worthy of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. So so I want to keep it simple today. Um, When people, um, if you know me... Um, sometimes I can not be simple, and I and you guys remind me of that a lot. Okay, I get it, but that's me. I'm just doing me. Okay, but today I want to be simple, and the reason why is I want to, I want you to leave here with two things in mind. I want it to be a simple message that you understand, and so I want to present to you two points. You see one on the screen right now. Point one, and it's why I had Clay read Romans eight because this comes from Romans eight chapter. It's verse 31. And it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay? I want you to remember that. That's Scripture. That's, that's the Bible. That's God's Word. That's the Apostle Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this is an awesome and wonderful thing if you think about it. For us to understand, we take comfort in this as followers of Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 8.31 is that if we're children of God, we will not see God's divine wrath and ultimate judgment. That's what he's saying. Uh, we will, will we face opposition in this world? Hard times, God's discipline, obviously, even. While on the earth, yes, absolutely. But God never forgets His people... And his grace for his people can never be denied. So, this thing if God is for us, who can be against us? God being for us, God being for us, is referring to the fact that God is on the side of his people, quite simply. He is working on the behalf of them and us all, and he is determined to save, and he cannot fail. Okay? Also, it's another way of saying there is no one who could possibly possibly be more powerful than God or no one can destroy His people ultimately, okay? And so it's the fact that there is simply no ultimate opposition and, being the children of God, our opposition is doomed to failure, okay? Okay? So we see this language in the Psalms as well. That was a New Testament writing from uh, Paul in Romans. Old Testament too. the psalmist writes in Psalm 118.6, it says, The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Hebrews 13.6 says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? We can have earthly opposition, yes, but when we compare the earthly opposition to the eternal power and presence of the Almighty God, God always wins. And no one can overcome God's love for us. So we see that here with Israel. God's chosen people. And if you'll remember, we read um, in chapter 1 last week, uh, verses 12 through 15, I want to bring your mind back to that again. Uh, It says, Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Talking about the Ninevites, the Assyrians. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, Israel, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck, and I will tear your shackles away. Verse 15 says, Look there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Israel, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. The oppression of the Assyrians is going to stop. Okay? And now in chapter 2, as we just read before, we see uh, in verse 2, the Lord, it says, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Okay? And so, what I want you to understand in here is, Under the heading and the thought of, if God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to understand that although the Lord has raised up a wicked people, the Assyrians, to discipline and oppress Israel, that God is saying, Israel, I'm going to restore you. Okay? If you think about this, God's saying, my people, I will restore to you. Ultimately, that is the main message in the entire Bible. I'll give you the Bible in four words. God saves His people. Start to cover. Four words. That's the Bible. Main message in the Bible is God will restore His people. Okay, God will save His people. When they need to be restored, He restores. When they need to be rescued, He saves. Good news to us, right? We've seen that. We know exactly how we've been saved. And since the Israelites were saved in the same way we are, meaning by grace through faith in the promises of God, everyone's saved the same way, we know that the believing remnant in Israel was for sure trusting in God to fulfill His promises to them, even under the oppression of the Assyrians, right? Okay, they're still faithfully walking with God, Expecting God to fulfill His promise. Being oppressed by the Assyrians. There's a faithful remnant in there in Israel. So if God is for us, who can be against us? This picture we see here when God will raise up His enemies on behalf of His people. Think about this. Is a foreshadowing of what He will do to them in the future. But in our past, what He did in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You understand that? Jesus came into the world at the right time under the worldly rule of Satan. Uh, Satan is referred to as the God of this age. Uh, Ephesians 2 2 says, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So God's people were in trouble, ruled by Satan, in trouble with sin and death at the door. We were in trouble. And our opposition was fierce—Satan, sin, death—fierce opposition. And we should stand condemned without God intervening because of sin, power of Satan, and death. Because because of our sin, fallen creatures. Without God intervening, we're in trouble. Were in trouble. So this is a foreshadowing. God's people were in trouble. What does God do? He intervenes. He restores his people. You see the gospel in this story of Israel? God rescues the oppressed, his children. So just as God removed the Assyrian opposition from the Israelites, he removed our opposition through the gospel of Jesus. You see that? For those here this morning found in Christ, here's what I want you to know. If you're found in Christ through faith and repentance, God is for you. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? No one. No one. It is, as Clay read, it is God who justifies. He's the justifier. Next, point two. Point one, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is against us, who can be for us? (laughs) Hebrews 10, 31 says, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And the Assyrians had it all. They lived in one of the largest, wealthiest, most powerful places on earth in Nineveh. And when they fought against other nations, they won. But the problem we see here in chapter 2 is verse 13. God tells them, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I am against you. God says, I am against you. John John MacArthur says, I am against you. Those words should be the most feared words a nation could receive from God. The Lord Almighty, God Almighty declares, I am against you. No matter what people have on the earth, if one were to have every material possession, have the most pristine health, have no earthly enemies, and God is against them, then they have nothing. They have temporary, momentary stuff that doesn't last. If God is against you, you have nothing. But if God is for you, you have everything. Remember Nahum 1 verse 3. This is one of the theme verses of the book especially in the first chapter, it says, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. God is against us. Who can be for us? God is just. He must punish sin and he must punish his enemies. If he doesn't, he's not what? Just. He must, or he's not just. So if God is against us, who can be for us? No one. There's no one else to save us from the wrath of God except God alone and what He did in the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. But sadly enough, today, there are many in the world today that believe their goodness can save them. They think, God won't punish a, a good person, surely. You know, when most people were asked... If they're a good person, you know what they say? Usually they say, yeah, pretty good person. Hitler believed he was doing the world a favor by slaughtering millions of Jews. It was a good deed. Most, most of us believe we're, we're good people. This is the biggest lie we could believe. The, the biggest lie we could believe. Uh, Pastor Kennedy, Kennedy, Hannity Hennedy. Kennedy prayed a few Sundays ago at the end of our service. He said this, and it struck me. He said, God, we are so depraved that we think we're actually the good ones. (laughs) We're so depraved that we actually think we are the good ones. Think about the story in the Gospels. You'll find the rich young ruler approached Jesus, and he calls Jesus a good teacher. Remember that story? Jesus was quick to say this. He was saying, there's only one good, and it's God. Remember that story? His quick response was the wisdom of God because he already knew the heart of the young ruler and Jesus knew he was going to fail the test that he was getting ready to present to him. And so the test was he was going to present to him seven of the Ten Commandments. Sure enough, as Jesus presented him with these Ten Commandments, here's what his response was. I've kept those since I was young. What else do I need to do? Jesus took God's moral law as a mirror which is a blessing to us to see our need of a Savior because we are failures, all of us. He presented that mirror to this rich young ruler and this rich young ruler in his prideful heart believed he passed the test. None of us are good. None of us are good. We're lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers in need of a Savior. We've all broken God's law. He believed he didn't need a savior, the rich young ruler. So Jesus says, go and sell your possessions, give to the poor and follow me. So he goes away sad. He didn't want to do that. It wasn't about his possessions. It wasn't about that. It was about his heart. He thought he, he passed the test. As we close here today, I told you I would be brief. And I want you to remember that. I want you to think about that. If God is forced, who can be against us? No one. If God is against us, who can be for us? No one. Same answer. Two different questions. As we close, I want to press into you here that are trusting Christ alone for salvation. I realize there's two groups. Every time the body meets, no matter where it is in the world, there's always believers and there's unbelievers. Okay, I understand that. So I want to speak to you believers right now. My words are... To encourage, I want to encourage you to continue trusting in Christ no matter what you're facing in your life, okay? Are you facing trouble, sickness, persecution, broken relationships, depression? Those are real things. Those are real things. I want to encourage you to continue looking to Christ as your source of strength. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? Will the depression take your soul? No. Will broken relationships take your soul? Disease take your soul? No. We are souls with bodies. We're not bodies with souls. God is for me, my soul. I'm good. God is for you. You're fine. Can we get sick? Yes. Are we God's children? And He'll ultimately protect us? Absolutely. I want to continue to encourage you to look to Christ. And if you have not bowed the knee in here, if you're a different group, that different group, if you've not bowed the knee to Jesus, please know this. With, with all love to you in sincerity, I beg you, I beg you to understand that you are an enemy of God. That's not my words, that's God's words. You are an enemy of the Almighty God. And what does God do to His enemies? He punishes them Horribly. I beg of you not to die in your sins. You don't have to die in your sins. Because the God man lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. That I couldn't live. Because when we look at God's moral law and the Ten Commandments, we see that we've broken all of them. So the problem is, we cannot earn God's favor. We can't buy God off. We can't tip Him, bribe Him. He's just, remember? He punishes sin. We're condemned. We're going, to be con- con- we're going to be condemned based on the crimes we've committed, not the goodness. So if I committed a crime, say I stole a car, and go into a courtroom today in the United States of America and say, Judge, I know I stole that car, but wait a minute, just, just a second. Before I did that, I helped this old lady across the street, and I sold everything I had, and I gave to the poor. What if the judge says, oh, you did that? You did that, Brent? Well, you're free to go. Is that a good judge? Is that a just judge? No, because I'm not there based on the good deeds I've done. I'm there based upon the crimes I've committed. And God is a holy, righteous, just judge that must punish sin. And so God can maintain His justice by allowing our debt to be paid. Our debt debt must be paid. How does He pay for the debt of wicked sinners? We're condemned against Holy God. And at the right time, God the Son takes on flesh. He lives the perfect life we can't live. He dies on a cross. He says, it is finished on the cross and three days later he rose again. And if you haven't done so today and you're an enemy of God, I beg of you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus only because he's our only hope. I beg of you to do that. The gospel is good news and and the gospel is the power of God to salvation. There's nothing else that will present you justified Before holy God. Than being found in Christ through faith and repentance. So with all love and kindness. I beg of you with fear and trembling for your souls. You are an enemy of God. Please repent. The power of sin and death can be removed. And you can be set free. Free indeed. By God the Son. And when you understand the grace of God through Jesus Christ, how freeing is that? To realize that He took the fine on my behalf. And now when God sees me, He sees me with the righteousness of Christ. I have a substitute that took my sin and gave me His righteousness. We all need a substitute. Trust Jesus alone. I beg of you to do so. Let's pray. Father, there's two simple things that I want you to help us to remember today. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God is against us, who can be for us? Let us really think about what that means. Father, we know that that through Jesus, we are justified. We're made right. We get a, We get the righteousness of Christ. And that is a wonderful gift from a gracious, and merciful God, and we appreciate that so much. Father, But there are people here today that have not bowed the knee to Jesus. And I pray that through my voice that Jesus is speaking to their hearts. Father, save them. Just as you've done us. Father, as we leave here today, we pray that you weigh on our minds that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if Father, we are free if we're hidden in Christ. Let our hearts celebrate as we leave. We've been bought with a price. We've been set free by God the Son. But, Father, would you please not let a soul in here leave It's still an enemy of God. That's a work that you can do, Father, we pray that you do it. But, Father, we bless you in the name of Jesus for this church, for this time.